1: says the Lord God behold I I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out as a shepherd shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness and I will bring them out from the people and gather them from the countries uh, at ravines and I will and all the inhibited places of the country and I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land there they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pastures, they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice, and I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them, and I shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them, and they will be my sanctuary and their moats forever. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel, and my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore.
0: Well, we have been, if you've been with us this semester, we've been looking at the life of David, and I hope as we wrap up... This year as a whole and this semester that that hopefully you've picked up the theme that the life of David in the Bible gives us just what a picture of the ordinary Christian life looks like, which means that the ordinary Christian life looks like uh, relying on God in the midst of your suffering, it looks like dealing with your envy, it looks like uh, forming good friendships. It looks like uh, failing, repenting over your sin, being merciful to others. That's just the normal day-in-and-day-out stuff of what the Christian life is. And tonight, I wanted to end on a passage that really underscores the reality of hope. Where does hope fit in to the ordinary Christian life? And to set that up, uh, I don't think it doesn't—it does not take much to realize that we live in a cultural moment, a moment in history that is marked by fear and anxiety and cynicism. Uh, People have talked about how we are at an all-time high in terms of cultural pessimism, where people collectively think the world is getting worse. And it doesn't take much to really think about that, to, to recognize that that might be what's happening. I mean, just think about the world that you woke up in this morning. Think about the world that we inhabit together. Um, We live in a world where we can't even keep up with the amount of mass shootings that happen in our country. I'm guessing 99% of the room doesn't even know when the last mass shooting was and who did it. They're happening so frequently. That's the world that we live in. Uh, We live in a world where there's ongoing issues of terrorism. Bombings, driving cars into crowds of people. Uh, ISIS continues to murder uh, innocent people. Uh, there's rising concern over Russia. There's ongoing conflict and concern with North Korea. There's the issues happening with Syria. We have a skyrocketing, skyrocketing national debt. Uh, we have a clean water crisis. We have a global refugee crisis. Uh, there's an absence of moral integrity in our. Uh, Political leadership, Uh, we as a country are politically divided, so there's not even any room for constructive engagement and conversation anymore. Uh, Women continue to be culturally oppressed. We have ongoing racial tensions. Human trafficking is out of control. Uh, the suicide rate has never been higher than it is right now, which tells you the, the level of despair that people are in. Uh, anxiety medication continues to be the top-selling prescription drugs to show you the uh, amount of fear that people are in. That's the world that you woke up in this morning. And that's not even your life specifically. That's just the backdrop Personally, you individually deal with all kinds of stuff: depression, uh, loneliness, shame, guilt, pain from your family, pain from relationships, conflict from with friends, addiction, eating disorders, divorce, rejection, regret, fear about the future. On and on and on, we could go. So my question is: uh, How do you how do you make it? in this life? How do you survive, if at any level even potentially thrive in a world that is as harsh and as scary as the one that we live in? Uh, maybe some of you have heard the name Victor Frankl. Victor Frankl was a Jewish psychotherapist that was put in the concentration camps of World War II and uh, survived to tell about it. And as a uh, as kind of a social scientist, he became really fascinated with people's responses in the concentration camps of how they responded to the unbelievable suffering and atrocities that they were experiencing. And he basically figured out that there were four different types of responses people had to the conditions of the concentration camp. Uh, One response from a group of people was that people just got brutal. People that were kind, nice, friendly people before they were put in the camps, when they were put in that level of suffering, they they, they became selfish, hardened animals where they would literally just step over people to save themselves, to protect themselves. That was response one. People just got brutal. Response two, some people just gave up. they literally became so hopeless and desperate they just withered up and would lay down and be unresponsive to any sort of uh, people trying to get them to move or anything. Just totally give up. Some people, a third group of people, um, had the idea that if they could just survive the concentration camp, if they could just get out, they could return to the life that they had before of their wealth, of their family, of their position in society. And they thought, if I can just get out and return to the way that it was, their hope was in that. And for many people that were liberated from those camps, went back to those lives, and and he's found in his study that a lot of those people entered into severe depression and or committed suicide because the life that they had hoped to relive couldn't compensate for the level of atrocity that they had experienced in the camps. And so the fourth group of people, some of the people in the camps were able to maintain an inner liberty where even though they were going through unbelievable, harsh circumstances and conditions, that they were kind, they were buoyant, they were gentle. And he found out that the reason behind what made this fourth response so different was hope. That they had hope in something eternal, something beyond them. They they had hope in an infinite reference point, that transcended their circumstances, that transcended their suffering. And here's what he writes about it. He says, life only has meaning if we have a hope that not even suffering and death can destroy. Life only has meaning if you have a hope that not even suffering and death can destroy. And so the question that I want to put before you tonight is this. What is your hope? What are you hoping for in light of how broken your life is and how broken the world is, is it big enough to where suffering and death can't even touch it? That's the question I want you to explore with me tonight. What I want to do is just really just look at two things. I want to try to answer two questions. What is the Christian hope and what does that matter? So that's what we're going to look at tonight. What is the Christian's answer to that question in terms of what is our hope in? What's the Christian hope and then who cares? What does it matter? How does it affect your actual life? So first, uh, what's the Christian hope? Now these two passages that are in front of you, Ezekiel 34 and 37, these are prophecies given through this prophet named Ezekiel 400 years after the life of, and death of David. And the circumstances in which this was given is that the people of Israel had found themselves in an unbelievably harsh, horrible situation. A, na- a, a neighboring uh, nation called Babylon had busted into the people of Israel. They had destroyed basically everything. They'd have abducted tons of the people from Israel, brought them back to Babylon and had them live in this foreign place where they were now kind of basically abducted and kidnapped. And it's in that context where their whole life is upended that God sends them this message through Ezekiel and he basically says this, I'm going to do something about how horrible and jacked up your life is. And so the question is, okay, what's he going to do? And the passages that are in front of you basically lay out nine things that God's going to do in the midst of this situation. And I debated whether or not I should go through all nine of these just for the sake of time, but I decided to do it quickly. Because I think looking at all nine of these from the passage, I I think the cumulative effect of that will be powerful. So I want to look at the nine things that God says he's going to do. First thing that God says he's going to do, it says God will seek after and find his sheep. He will seek after and find his sheep. Look at verse 11. Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. Verse 12. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. Verse 16. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the stray. Now the image, of course, is God is the shepherd. His people are the sheep, which is not really a flattering image because sheep are incredibly stupid. And they're not fast, which means that they're always vulnerable to wolves or to robbers. And unlike dogs or cats, when they wander away from like the safety of the flock, They can't figure out how to get back to the flock, so the shepherd has to actually go out and get them. And when the shepherd goes and finds the sheep, sheep are not overjoyed to be found. They scatter, they panic, they try to run. They're always making really stupid decisions that potentially harm themselves. That's the image here. But the image is this. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have wandered away from the Lord and we've we can't even figure out how to get back and the passage says the goodness of this passage says the lord as our shepherd will go after us he will pursue us even when we don't even know how to get back to him he's like the dad in the movie taken that like will not stop until he has his children in his arms that's the first thing that we see of the nine god will seek after and find his sheep here's number 2 god will rescue his sheep look at halfway through verse 12 I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered. This means, not only have the sheep wandered off, they have gotten themselves in such a position where they need to be rescued. They cannot rescue themselves. But God says, I will go after my sheep, I will go after my people, and I will rescue them from disaster. Third thing, God will gather his sheep Look at verse 13. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. This shows you that God isn't just pluck, plick, pluck little individual sheep. He, he gathers his sheep together into a community, into a flock, into a church. He makes us a part of something bigger than ourselves. We're not, it's, it's not just a me and God thing. It's a community thing. Here's the fourth thing. It says, God will feed them. Look at uh, halfway through verse 13. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel. Verse 14. I will feed them with good pasture. That means that we are nourished, provided for. He sustains us. He satisfies us. He fills us finally. Uh, fifth thing God will be their shepherd. Look at verse 15. I myself will be the shepherd. Of my sheep. This means that God protects us himself. He oversees and protects his people so finally his people can be safe. Uh, No more need for alarm systems, no more need for safety belts, no more need for firearms, no more need for identity theft protection, no need for medicine because he is our protector, he is our shepherd. Sixth thing God will tend to the wounds of the hurting. Look at verse 16. I will bind up the injured. Self-explanatory. Look at uh, number seven. God reverses the values of the world. This is a great verse. Verse 16. I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. This means that the poor and the downcast and the people in this life that nobody cares about, he elevates and he promotes. And the powerful and the strong and the important people of the world, he demotes and he destroys. He reverses the values of the world. As Jesus put it, the last will be first and the first will be last. His kingdom is only for the weak and the needy. Number eight, God will dwell with them. Look at chapter 37, verse 27. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. End of verse 28. My sanctuary will be in their midst forever. The great promise of the future is that God will be with you. Emmanuel, God with us. What we experience now by faith, we will experience then with sight. Here's the last thing, and here's the funnest one. Number nine, God will send David back. Chapter 34, verse 23. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd chapter 37 verse 24. My servant David shall be king over them and they shall have one shepherd. Now, I know that was a lot. I just threw out you, but here's where things get really interesting and really weird. Because this passage goes out of its way to say you will have one shepherd over you. Only one. And look at chapter 34 verse 15. God says I myself will be the shepherd. Then in chapter 34, verse 23, it says, I will set up one shepherd over them, my servant David. So here's the thing. Is the shepherd God or David? Which one is it, God or David? And the answer that the Bible's going to give is yes. <laughs> it's both. The shepherd that this is talking about, this David, is the, the, the fulfillment of this is great David's greater son, the Lord Jesus, fully God, fully man this whole passage is pointing to him and says the golden king the great shepherd himself jesus will come back he will protect his sheep he will gather them he will feed them he will restore everything that is wrong with the world he will fix everything that is broken in the world that is the christian hope that one day someday jesus our shepherd and our king will come back and restore everything in creation Here's how um, Dostoevsky put it in Brothers Karamazov. There's a little quote that he, one of his characters says this. It's a great way to summarize what I'm talking about. It says, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for, that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage. At the moment of eternity... At the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood that that has been shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. In other words, the Christian hope in a nutshell is this. One day, someday... Jesus will come and restore all of creation. That's the Christian hope. Now I know that was a lot. So let's try to answer the question of like, okay, who cares? Like, How does that matter? What does that matter? How does that affect your life on a random Wednesday afternoon? And what I want to try to show you for the rest of our time is that it radically affects everything about your life. I really want to just show you two things that Christian hope were you to buy into it it changes how you relate to life and it changes how you relate to death let's think about how you how this changes how you relate to life here's one way it frees you from being dominated by FOMO you know FOMO fear of missing out right? people were talking about that three years ago but let's talk about it now The fear of missing out dominates and cripples all of us. And here's why. Because deep down, what we think about life is that this is all that there is. And if this life is all that there is, then I have to wring out as much happiness that I can get because this is it. Once this life is over, it's over. And if you buy into uh, this hope, it frees you from that. Because think about it. If you really think this life is all there is, that puts enormous pressure on every decision you make. And this is the reason why most of us are uh, anxiety-filled, can't-make-any-decisions sort of people because we think so much is at stake with every decision. When you got to UT, some of you got here and you thought, okay, which fraternity or which sorority should I be a part of that will maximize my next 40 years at UT? Which campus ministry or Christian group should I be a part of that will maximize my coolness, that will maximize my community, that will maximize my spiritual growth? I've got to, you know, uh, some of you are so crippled by dating, I don't know who to date because I have to find the perfect person that's going to maximize joy for me, uh, this is why some of you won't even think about going to summer conference, as ridiculous as this is an example, to think if I sign up for summer conference and I don't know who's going and I go down there and I get stuck with a bunch of weird people I don't know, then I find out all my people back home decide to do something really cool and I miss out on it and I'm stuck down here at summer conference, I, I can't make that decision. And you see how if you really believe this life is all there is, every decision has enormous amounts of pressure to it. This is also why, by the way, um, for a Christian to have a bucket list is is kind of a weird thing. Like if you think about it, you know, a bucket list is uh, everything that you want to do before you die. Before I die, I want to get married. I want to have sex. I want to skydive. Want to get a tattoo. Want to have more sex. You know, whatever. Um, but if you if you think about it. That's not wrong to have a bucket list if you're a Christian, but it's pretty weird. I mean, th- think, here's what one pastor says that I'm trying to. Um, uh, here's what he says. I'm quoting one pastor. He says, "You do realize that your best day on earth will be like a bad dream in glory. That's why a bucket list is so strange. Everything in my life that I will enjoy will be that will be unbelievable and cool will only come after death." When I see God face to face, I won't care if I saw Mount Everest or the Grand Canyon or was married before I died. The Grand Canyon, which I have yet to see, I mean, I hear it just makes uh, makes you stop in your tracks, the Grand Canyon will be the least interesting thing in glory. You see what he's saying? Your best days are in front of you. And the truth of that frees you from the anxiety-filled, can't make a decision, paranoid FOMO life that so many of us live. Because if you actually lean into the Christian hope of reality, what it does is it frees you to say, okay, maybe college will not be the best 40 years of my life, and I'm okay with that. It frees you to say, uh, I'm, I'm single, and I'm okay with that. It frees you to have friends that may not be the coolest people at UT, but you're actually okay with that. Because you're convinced that this life is not all that there is. That there's another life coming which frees you from the insanity that we put on ourselves of this life. Because here's the thing when Jesus comes back and restores all of creation God will let me visit Fiji. God will let me eat the perfect strawberry drink the perfect cup of coffee go to the perfect concert um, hang out with perfect people smell the perfect honeysuckle and, and when you know that that is coming you don't have to white knuckle your way through this life which so many of us are doing the Christian hope changes the way that you relate to life but secondly it also changes the way that you relate to death when it says that Jesus will be our king and reign over us and protect us from ever, this forever this means that death will never touch us again Here's a really interesting fact. Um, Did you know that Christians were the first people to refer to graveyards as cemeteries? In the first century, Christians, weirdly enough, started talking about graveyards as cemeteries. You know what the word cemetery means, literally? Dormitory. Basically like Reese. (laughs) Reese. Christians are like, you see that graveyard? It reminds me of Humes. Uh, but what they, what they were saying is, this, this, is a, this is a temporary sleeping place. Jesus has done something so decisive to death that even when you die, it's basically like you're sleeping because you're going to get up again someday, one day. Death does not hold you. Death does not have the final word over you. If you are in Christ, and that means if that is true, that death even death itself does not get the last word. you are freed from having your circumstances be the thing that control your well being uh, fe- on february twenty third in the year one hundred and fifty five a d there 's an old man named Polycarp that was arrested by the Roman government. And because he was a Christian, he was a famous Christian bishop. He was an 86-year-old man. By the way, we have all kinds of historical details about this story. And they tried to force him to deny Christ publicly. They, They said, renounce Christ and I will let you go. And here was Polycarp's response. Awesome name, by the way. He says, for 86 years I have been his servant and he has done me no wrong. So how can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And so they said, okay, you won't renounce Christ. We're going to tie you to this pole and light you on fire while you're alive. And he said, you don't have to tie me. And he willingly held onto the pole and they lit him on fire and that's how he died. To have that kind of hope where even the most horrific circumstances you can endure and you can go through. Because you know that this life is not all that there is. You know that Jesus actually comes back. If you do not have a hope that is bigger than your circumstances, what that means for you practically is that you are a slave to how good or bad your circumstances are. You are only as good or as bad as however good or bad your life is. I'm good because my life is going well. I'm doing horrible because my life is going horrible. That's slavery. You are hooked into your circumstances. But if you have a hope that is beyond you, that is eternal, that is in the great shepherd king that is coming back for you, this means that you can endure the most horrific trial, the most painful suffering, and you can go through it with kindness, with gentleness, with courage, like Polycarp did, with love, because you recognize that this life is not all there is. I'll end with this. This is a a story that I heard from a friend of mine, a pastor friend of mine who is a pastor up in Virginia. And a number of years ago, he said this young couple came to his church and joined the church. It was a... a they were fresh out of college. He was 23. Uh, I think they were both 23. And they joined his church. They'd only been married for a little bit of time. And uh, he wanted to be a missionary. And she was going through law school to uh, try to enter into how do, how do we deal with the human trafficking crisis. And a few months after they joined my friend's church, uh, the, the guy found out that he had been diagnosed with testicular cancer. So he goes to the doctor, he, he uh, uh, undergoes, uh, starts going through chemo, and after a number of months, the tests come back, that he's clean, cancer-free, beats, beats cancer. A year and a half later, uh, the cancer comes back, and they go to the doctor and get it checked out, and they scan, they figure out it's, been, it's all in his gut now. It's spread to his gut. So he goes through surgery, has part of his large intestine removed, goes through a second round of chemo, comes out of it on the other side and he's cancer free Uh, sometime later maybe a year and a half or so later uh, the cancer comes back again and when the doctor goes to scan him and check it out they discover it's all it's everywhere and so the doctor tells my friend the pastor it's everywhere and we're fighting a losing battle this is going to be the end for him so my pastor goes and like like super pastor mode, and like enters into their life together as he starts going through uh, chemo again for a third time, and he's counseling um, the the soon-to-be widowed wife, who's 24 years old, and uh, this guy, his name was Peter. Uh, he starts losing weight. He's he's loses 65 pounds. He's just withering away as a shadow of himself. And they start to talk about uh, his funeral arrangements and what what he wants his funeral to be like. And he tells uh, my pastor friend, "When I die and I'm buried, I want you to have. Uh, my, I want my body to be dressed in a uh, a pink T-shirt, and I want to wear a, like a Yoda tie, like a Star Wars Yoda tie. That's what I want." And my pastor's like, the pastor friend's like, "Whatever you want." And sure enough, uh, Peter eventually dies and he's uh, put in the casket and up front uh, for the the visitation at the funeral. There he is wearing a pink shirt and a Star Wars Yoda tie. Now why did he want to do that? It's because he understood the Christian hope. What he wanted to do was to laugh at death death in its face. To mock it. To be able to look at death and to say you might have won this time but I am united to a resurrected king who will one day, someday come back for me and restore not just me but everything in creation. And if that is true then he can throw up his middle finger at death and say, Jesus gets the last laugh. Jesus gets the last word. If you don't have this sort of hope you are a slave to the circumstances of your life but the ordinary Christian hope is this, that one day someday Jesus will come back and restore everything in creation and that affects how we live our life and that affects how we relate to our death let me pray Father, I do pray that um, you would give our hearts the grace to anchor our hope to the coming king, great David's greater son. Father, I don't know what uh, the hope is of the folks in this room, the hope that maybe they can just get through college, the hope that maybe we can get just the right person in office, the hope that maybe we can just have no more uh, wars or clean water or whatever. But Father, I pray that you would give us a hope that is bigger and more transcendent than that. Give us a hope that empowers us to live life differently. That even changes the way that we face our death. That we can look at it in the face and mock it. Where, O death, is your sting? Would that be true of my heart and would that be true of the hearts of these folks here tonight? pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.